Dear friends, please turn to Luke chapter 4. We'll be walking through verses 31 through 37 this morning. I'll go ahead and read that passage. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down, and when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed, and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding area. We do practice, as we have said many times, systematic exposition of Scripture. And this is the next text that we have before us. So I didn't, those of you visiting, I didn't suddenly have an urge to preach on demon possession, but rather that is the next passage that is before us. And when you're practicing the systematic exposition of Scripture, you get to walk through texts that maybe aren't as easy as others, or texts that make you feel uncomfortable, or texts that are just outright very difficult. And we're dealing with the topic of demon possession here within this passage of Scripture. And I want to make a couple um, notations on this. There's going to be a bit of teaching in this sermon just so that we can even frame the things that we're going to discuss as we walk through them, because I don't just want to make assumptions and walk forward. There's things that we need to frame out. And when you're talking about the subject of demon possession in the Scriptures, you're primarily dealing with the Gospels and the book of Acts. Have you ever thought of that? It's not something that you find throughout the pages of Scripture. Paul doesn't even deal with it specifically in his epistles as he's writing to the different churches. This isn't a regular thing that all of the churches were dealing with. And we don't see it specifically dealt with in the rest of the New Testament. You don't see it dealt with anywhere in the Old Testament. And I mean this specifically, so don't bring me a passage that has some little nuance of something. But I'm dealing with actual demon possession, where a demon is fully controlling someone and controlling what they say and what they do. This is the first of 21 miracles that we're going to see Jesus perform as we walk through the gospel of Luke. And um, this, is, this is happening, we need to remember, right after Jesus preached in his hometown. That's going to be something that we need to remember. He was in Nazareth last week. He was preaching in the synagogue. He proclaimed to them, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. That was basically the summary of his sermon. And then they sought to throw him off a cliff. Those that he grew up with sought to destroy him, sought to put him to his death. And here he is now, walking down to Capernaum, and he's in another synagogue, and he's preaching. So there's three things that we want to pull out of this that I think are very general truths, general things we see in this passage um, that all of us need to consider and remember. Uh, the first is that darkness desires to disrupt worship. Satan and his minions desire to disrupt worship. They desire to disrupt the worship of the people of God, and they will use many different means to do that. We see them 
using one means here where a demon possesses a man and he begins to speak out in the middle of the time when Jesus is preaching. But they will use many different means to disrupt worship. Secondly, this is really important, darkness recognizes light. Darkness recognizes light. The demon within this man recognized Jesus, declared some very orthodox things about Jesus. This demon was more orthodox than that synagogue in Nazareth where they were trying to throw him off a cliff. Thirdly, thirdly, darkness is defeated. Darkness is defeated. We see Jesus being victorious over the demon within this passage. So first, we see darkness desires to disrupt worship. We'll see that in verse 31 through 33. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. Now it says he went down to Capernaum, and this is because geographically Capernaum is lower than Nazareth. Uh, Capernaum is below sea level, and Nazareth is several thousand feet above sea level. And this is something that I, I just can't help but note this, and we'll note this as we go through this gospel. Um, I can't help but notice that Jesus must have been in very superb physical condition. I mean, what he would do, if you look at the geography of where he would walk, he is walking down these roads. There's going to be rocks on these roads. He's walking down. I mean, how many of you have walked up hills and walked down hills? I mean, I know walking up, you go to Miller Outdoor Theater in Houston. You walk up that hill and you walk down that hill and you might be just slightly winded. He is doing this for many miles, walking down this hill or walking up this hill to these locations. And he's going down afterwards, and he's ministering. He's teaching and he's preaching after making these travels. He was, he was a very fit person. I think that's clear. He was also a carpenter. Likely a stonemason would be the right way probably to understand what his actual profession was. But he taught. He is teaching here in Capernaum. I want to make this note as well. He's teaching here in Capernaum after those in Nazareth, that town that is his hometown, the place where he grew up, after they tried to kill him, the people that he grew up with, the people that were his childhood friends, you know, the people that were teaching him in the classes, in the synagogues, and that he was playing with during the times as they traveled to and from the temple during their great festivals. These are people that are trying to kill him. Do you remember how, how they went to such extremes? At one point, they're celebrating him. They're so proud. The hometown boy comes home. Okay, show us some of those tricks. Show us some of those miracles like you did at Capernaum. And then they begin to respond in anger as he begins to speak truth to them. So much so that in their rage, God did not show restraining grace to these people. And these people went forward in their actions. Though they would have normally been restrained, they were not restrained. They tried to throw him off a cliff. God did show restraining grace at the end and did not even allow them, for he allowed Jesus to pass through the crowd. But their heart's desire was to kill him. Their heart's desire was to put him to death. And Jesus is teaching in the synagogue shortly after that. 
don't look at Jesus as some kind of a stoic person that's just emotionless. He's unaffected by pain. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He desired not to take that cup. He submitted to the will of the Father in his humanity. He did not look at that as something, this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm so happy that I'm about to get beaten. No, but he walked forward in that. He walked forward in obedience through the pain and through the difficulty. And here he is now ministering, even early on. We showed how this foreshadowed that Passion Week. Remember, at the beginning of the Passion Week, they're going to be laying down, they're going to be crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. They'll be laying down the palm leaves as he walks on the colt, is carrying him. And then by the end of the week, they'll be yelling, crucify him. They'll be beating him, throwing him upon a cross. And that's what we saw in that synagogue last week, where they immediately began to cheer him on, immediately were joyful over what he spoke, and then turned in blind rage and hatred toward the message that he spoke. You see Jesus even dealing with that, continuing to minister here in spite of that. We also see what we gathered last time, and that is Jesus' regular habit of gathering on the Sabbath day in the synagogues. That's what it said. It said, as was his habit, as he regularly did. This was his normal practice. This is how he would spend the Sabbath day. It was a priority to Jesus that he gather together with God's people and worship God on the Sabbath day. And we talked about that even a few weeks ago, the reality that if there was anyone that you could say, well, maybe they don't really need to be gathering and sitting and under preaching and learning, you might say, well, Jesus certainly is wiser than any of us, but yet he did. But yet he did, and yet he did because this was the right way to use that day. And Jesus was blessed in that, and he was even being prepared for his time of ministry in that time. And here he is once again on a Sabbath day, and he's gathering together with the saints. And here he is teaching and preaching on this time. You know, some people would look at the Old Testament, and they would say, you know, the Sabbath day, there's not really anything about teaching or instruction. Well, I think something like this really shows that to be contrary, not, not to be true. The fact that they were gathering, they found this to be the best use of their time. They found this to be that which is most appropriate. And that's something that we see even carried forward here on the Lord's Day, that the people of God are gathering together, that they're singing praises to God they're resting, not just to do nothing. So many times, we, people approach something like the Lord's Day, and they try to just find, okay, what's the list of things that I can't do? Would you, would you please, I get these emails, I get these phone calls, would you tell me all the things that I can't do on the Lord's Day? Well, I suppose I can tell you some things that you're not supposed to do on the Lord's Day, but I think that's, that's really missing the point. If, if, if your religion is something merely of negativity, okay, merely of this is what I don't do, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't dance, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't, you know, you are totally missing the point of the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is to be a delight. The Lord's Day is to be a blessing to you. The Lord's Day is to be that which um, sanctifies you, where you are blessed and grown through the ordinary means of grace. 
And Jesus is participating in those ordinary means even here during this time as he's gathered in the synagogue and he's blessing the saints that are here as well. And he teaches them in a way that's different from many of the rabbis at this time. He teaches, as they say, as one who has authority. Now, here's what this means. When the rabbis were teaching, many times they would bring forward a particular passage and they would begin to say, okay, well, this rabbi says this, and this one says this, and then this one says this, and then this one says this, and the, the sermon would be a collection of, of quotes many times. I'm not saying all of them are that way, but that was, that, was, that was very common. And perhaps they would come down with something very specific and direct and an application, and perhaps they would just kind of leave it in the air for you to make your own determination. Jesus was not sitting before them, giving them a list of what all the rabbis said before him. He didn't need to stand upon their authority, okay? He didn't need to stand upon what this rabbi said and what this rabbi said, right? He wrote the scriptures, He is the very Word of God. He is declaring these truths to them. So he's speaking in a way that is distinct from the rabbis, and I would say is distinct from other people that preach as well. And here's what you don't take from this. I'm going to put some fences up on this because I think there are some ditches that people can start to run into because some people will read something like this and they will say, you know what, this means that we don't need to listen to, you know, anything that men say. If I'm writing a sermon, I don't need to look at the commentaries. I don't need to consider the language. I don't need to consider historical situations. I can just look at the Word of God and make a determination. And it's true. You can be very confident in ignorance. I thought I knew a whole lot about the Bible before I had ever taken any classes on any of the books of the Bible. And I began to realize how ignorant I very was. That I would look at a passage and I would not take into consideration the historical time. I would not take into consideration the passages prior to and after. I would not take into consideration the language. I would not take into consideration biblical theology as a whole, redemptive history as a whole. And there's those that would go forward and and try to stand very strong. It's just me and the Holy Spirit. You know, God's just going to, I don't need men. I don't need to read the works of men don't need all these commentaries and such. And I had a man standing before, I don't need to go to cemetery. He thought he was funny calling the seminary a cemetery. It's not very spiritually doing, spiritual doing that. Um, But I find people that do this, people that talk this way have some of the worst hermeneutical practices that they will just destroy entire passages of scripture in blind zeal in confidence. And the truth is that the Spirit of God works within the lives, the hearts, and the minds of a great many people, and has, has for history, has for history. And we are blessed at this time that we have people that we can look back at. And when we're looking back at what others have said before, if I'm looking back at what Augustine said, or I'm looking at what Calvin said, or I'm considering what a modern scholar might say, it's not about that particular person and their position, but it's rather about how what they say lines up with what the Scriptures say, because the Scriptures are our ultimate authority. The Scriptures, as we study today in the 1689 class, are the special revelation of God. This is the only means whereby you can know how to be saved. There is sufficient evidence in the creation 
in general revelation where you can know how you have sinned. You can know that you are condemned before God. There's plenty there whereby you will be condemned, but there's not sufficient evidence in the creation whereby you can know how to be saved. That requires special revelation. That requires the Word of God. And so even, even what men say must be lined up with the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? And he spoke with authority, and in this time as they're gathered for worship, the demonic desired to disrupt worship. Darkness desired to disrupt worship. We see that in verse 33. And in the synagogue there was a man who had, an un, had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out in a loud voice. Now it does say here unclean, and some will go and gather that and say, well, this is a specific category of demon. I don't think we need to do that. It's an unclean demon. I, there aren't clean demons and unclean demons. This is a demon. This is a worker of Satan. This is a fallen angel, uh, as we would understand it. And their desire was to disrupt worship. This time where the Lord is using the Word of God and the Spirit of God to be affecting people, to be changing people. Jesus was furthering His kingdom. And we'll see this theme as we keep walking through. He's furthering His kingdom through proclaiming the Word of God. And right here especially, He's proclaiming the Word of God, proclaiming His kingdom, furthering His kingdom as the people of God are gathered together through these ordinary means of grace. And I think that the demon is responding at this time because he feels attacked. The Word of God is going forward. Jesus is working through the means of the Word and the Spirit, and the demon feels attacked, and that's why he is speaking. I can't help but think that the demon believed this was his best course of action at this time. Perhaps he wasn't always acting this way, but this is how he was acting at this time. And don't dismiss that. I think that's our big takeaway here on this point, that, that the spiritual dark, the darkness desires to disrupt worship. One of the things that the enemies of the Lord will desire to do is to disrupt worship, and there's a great many ways that it could happen. Certainly, someone with a demon, could come in and begin to disrupt everything. But that's not the means that Satan normally works. We've already laid out the fact that that's not really common. That's not a a normal thing to do. Uh, He's going to work through more subtle means. He's going to work through means in a particular culture that are going to be most effective. And I would say in a culture like ours, one of the most (laughs) effective means of disrupting worship to us is going to be the various amounts of distractions that we have in our culture at this time. How many of us are distracted even now? How many of us have been distracted for much of this time by things that, that, that aren't a priority, by, by things that, that aren't appropriate for this time period, by things that our minds don't need to be on at this time? Additionally, there is a desire to disrupt worship by leading people to do things that are not worship and calling them worship. The Lord has declared to us that which is worship. We practice here in this church what is known as regulative worship. And we practice regulative worship because we believe God determines that which is worship. The Word of God says what is worship. Just like in the Old Testament where they had the ceremonial system and they were to act in the way in which it was prescribed and they were to 
certainly not do the things they were told not to do, but they wanted to add to it. God wasn't looking for them to be creative or to, to add their own little flair or to, you know, make it their own special thing. No, they were called to do what God commanded them to do. And I would say in this country, that is, that is a great way that worship is disrupted. We begin to bring elements into worship that are not worship. We would not even, it is really common in this country, in the middle of the service to go and to give announcements. Practically, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know if you notice this, but as we get further into the service, we have more and more people in this room. And so from a practical standpoint, many people would say, well, we have the most people in the room at this time. That's the time to go and to give the announcements so everyone can hear all of the announcements. We intentionally don't give announcements in the middle of our service. I think it's a violation of the regular principle of worship to begin to give announcements about different activities that are going to happen during the week, even if they're important or they're good. That's not what worship is about. And that, it's not just announcements. There's many other things we could begin to bring into worship, anything from a dance team to a skit to some kind of music that exists merely for the purpose of entertainment that is not for the purpose of worship. Darkness desires to disrupt worship. Satan absolutely will work in this area to disrupt worship within this church and within your lives. And you need to be mindful of this, that the Lord has a special purpose for the gathering of the saints on the Lord's day. And it goes without saying that you absolutely need to be gathered with the saints on the Lord's day. All the ways we've had to communicate that over the years, that it is so important that you will find all kinds of reasons not to gather with the saints on the Lord's day, and you begin to look at your life, and you consider all the other activities that you're making a priority on that day. And, and it's been such a, a great disappointment for me over the years to see even the changes in the culture, that now even the activities that would have, when I was younger, not even have been on a Wednesday night, because that would have been a prayer meeting at a church, absolutely not have been on a Sunday, that you now have swim meets, baseball games, football games, gathering. I'm driving to church. I remember when we lived off of Spring Cypress. We worked off of Spring Cypress at the church, at the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I'd be driving over there where we gathered on the Lord's Day, and there would be, they're, already, they're in full game mode. Hundreds of people gathered for these games. Oh, dear friends, take note of that. Don't lead your family in this way. Don't be one that leads your family to disregard worship. We worship that which we cherish. We spend our time where we desire to. That which we love is demonstrated through the actions of our lives, especially through the consistent ones. And don't lead your family in this way. So these are ways just I, I, would, I would mention that are ways in which worship is disrupted. Darkness desires to disrupt worship. Secondly, Darkness recognizes the light. This, this point won't be as long as my other two, but darkness recognizes the light. I find this to be incredible. I find, I find the confession of this demon to be absolutely incredible, especially when we compare it with the context in which this is written. Verse 34, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, that ha, the demon's basically mocking him. 
It could be that he's mocking him. It could be that he's terrified. It seems to me that he is mocking him in, in how, he, how he, it's basically, he's basically just, um, it's not really a word, it's more of a sound in the Greek language there, but he's, he's mocking him as he speaks, as he's declaring these truths. But notice that, the demon recognized Jesus. The demon knew who Jesus was. This is normal. It's totally normal. Overwhelmingly, when Jesus is dealing with demons, they know who he is. They recognize him. They make very orthodox statements about Jesus. Here he is. He says, you are the Holy One of God. He even believes certain eschatological truths. He believes that Jesus is going to come forward and he is going to destroy the kingdom of Satan. These are eschatological truths. These are orthodox statements that many who claim to be Christians do not even make. Oh, dear friends, is your orthodoxy greater than that of a demon? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This should influence our understanding of evangelism and conversion. I want to emphasize that. Because there are times where evangelism just, just comes forward as being nothing more than just reciting something or just knowing a few certain truths. Mm-mm. This is coming right after what happened in Nazareth. Luke is placing this here. It's no, it, 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 there's no question in my mind that there is a distinction that is here. In Nazareth, they looked at Jesus as a magician, hometown boy, coming home, speaking. They did not see him as the Messiah. They did not see him as the Holy One who was from God. They saw him as one who can do something for them. You did some miracles in Capernaum. Why don't you do some of that here? He sought to throw him off a cliff. And here they are. In the very next passage, several thousand feet lower, and there is an agent of darkness, a demon, that is declaring that Jesus is the Holy One sent from God. The demon is more orthodox than those in the synagogue in Nazareth. He knows who he is, the Holy One of God. Please understand this, dear friends. Faith in Jesus Christ, saving faith in Jesus Christ, is not a mere intellectual assent. There are certain truths you have to know. We practice, as we have said numerous times, a historical faith. This is a religion that has certain things that happened in real time, in human history. That's why we have genealogies. We just preached through one recently. I think genealogies are very difficult to preach, but they're also very beneficial. That's why they're there. We need to not ignore them. And our faith is unlike the different world religions and cults that exist of man's religion. It is grounded in history. There are specific historical truths. Jesus, though he is the Son of God, though he brought all things into existence from absolutely nothing, doesn't just walk around and say, just believe in me because of what I say. Don't just believe in me. Just believe in me because I say I'm the Son of God. No, he's got the entirety of 1,500 years of scriptures of written prior to his coming. 
He's got all of that, those prophets declaring these truths, going even back into the Garden of Eden, where the Lord said, I will send a child of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And then he has the greatness of the miracles that he did in his time and the prophetic utterances that are happening even afterwards in that time. Jesus didn't just merely speak of himself. The Word of God spoke of him. God the Father spoke of him. We saw that in the baptism. And faith is not merely having knowledge, though knowledge is necessary. You can't divorce that. You have to be orthodox. You can't be unorthodox. Because if you're saved by grace and through faith, if you're trusting on Jesus Christ, you must absolutely know who he is. You can walk throughout the streets in this country and you find people that say, I believe in Jesus, I trust in Jesus, and you begin to talk to that person. Jesus is not divine. Jesus is just a great political figure. Jesus is this great liberator that's going to bring about the end of all, he's going to bring forward all this social justice. But he's not divine. I'm sorry, you may have good intentions. That's not the true Jesus. You may have someone else that begins to speak. They say, I believe in Jesus, but, but he was not human. He, he, he just looked like he was human. It was a mirage. He, he did that for the people to accommodate them. Well, you have a God there that's violating the ninth commandment, it seems, and, and being very confusing because there's a whole lot of people that then thought he was human because of the way he behaved. But you have one that it's not Christian either, where you don't recognize the humanity of Jesus. For how can you have a federal head that is not like your original federal head? You need a second Adam, so one who is actually human. You've got to be orthodox. But you're not saved because you just know certain things to be true. There is a trusting in Jesus Christ. There is a standing upon that solid rock of Jesus Christ. There is a believing upon what he has done. I mentioned this in my prayer. There are two things that Jesus did for us in particular. And the first is his passive obedience. Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God that we can be saved. Jesus died upon the cross, taking upon himself the wrath of God. He was our propitiation and Jesus, see, if he had just done that, we would be right where Adam and Eve started. If he merely took away the wrath of God, you would start over from scratch, and you would be, well, if you sinned, then it would be all over again. But Jesus didn't just take the wrath of God for our sin and the sin of Adam. He was obedient. He, was, he, was, he had an active obedience. Jesus fulfilled the law in every respect. He never violated it in any way. And so he earned for you, dear Christian, the gift of eternal life, the, the fruits of perfect obedience to the law of God. Dear friend, you must understand that that's what you need. Your faith must exceed that of a demon. James 2, beginning in verse 19, says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Don't we see that right here? Don't we see the demon making a very orthodox statement? Now, Pastor Fry will be preaching through this pretty soon. Do you, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? See, the one who believes in Jesus Christ isn't merely just going to verbally say something. We so get this wrong. 
Okay, well, you're trusting in someone, you're believing in someone, you need to believe these things. Let me just get this person to recite all of these things from us. We're so businesslike in this culture, aren't we? Okay, so let me, just, let me just get everyone to come here, stand before me, repeat these words after me. I know some of you became Christians that way. I'm not taking that away from you. I know there's a great many people that become Christians through, through these evangelism techniques that you don't find in the pages of Scripture. But you run into issues there where you have someone merely say something after you, where they just are responding to something emotionally because of the ways in which you're behaving, dimming the lights and playing the music and speaking in certain ways to affect them. And you have them saying certain things. There's no evidence that they were changed. There's no evidence that they were actually affected going forward. I do remember that they would have these, these big crusades when I was younger, and they would go around... And there was, a, uh, there was a study that was done later on, and they found, they found less than 10% of the people of these crusades ended up in a church. So these are people that are being recorded. Sometimes they're getting baptized, sometimes they're not. They're being recorded as being a Christian. They're told you're saved. They're given a Bible. For some reason, you're given a Bible, and there's a date in it. All right? And you're told, if, if Satan ever questions you. If you ever begin to question your salvation, just look at the date in the Bible. And people with good intentions give all of these, these pragmatic things to do. It's not faith. It's not faith. This demon was very orthodox. James talks about this. Even the demons believe and shudder. There is a trusting in the work of Jesus Christ that will so work upon you. You will be a different person, dear friends. You will not be perfect. You will not be perfect. But you will be changed. And I would say this, like Lazarus was changed from being in a state of decomposition and death in the tomb and he was brought to life and he walked out in obedience to what Jesus said. So will those be who are in Christ Jesus. You will be changed. You will be affected. And you must believe rightly. You must understand that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the one who brought all things into existence from absolutely nothing. And Jesus has given you life and breath. And you came from the womb at enmity with him. At enmity with God. Desiring to stand against the kingdom of God to stand with the kingdom of darkness. You came from the womb not being a child of God, but rather being a child of the devil. But Jesus came that you can have life, that you can be redeemed. You don't have to live in your sin. You don't have to be a slave anymore. You can be saved. You can be changed. For Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil as it was promised there in the garden. So it is being brought to fruition here on the pages as he preaches in the synagogue. So it is being brought to fruition as the word of God is preached and the spirit of God works upon people and they come to an understanding. They're given life. 1 John 3 and verse 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that's what he's doing right here. This is the kingdom of God going forward. We're going to have that passage 
coming up shortly. I look forward to preaching on the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God is going forward in the heart of His people as they are converted and brought to understanding, as their eyes are open, as their ears have understanding. Is that you, dear friend? Are you one who is coming to an understanding? Are you seeing the seriousness of your sin? Are you seeing the reality of your sin? Are you seeing the way in which your sin is something that God hates and displeases? You want to see how much God hates sin? Look to the cross. For that is the great cost that was necessary. And you see on the cross both the holiness of God and the love of God, the righteousness of God and the mercy of God. For Christ died that you can have life, dear friend, if you will but turn to him and trust in him. And your faith must be that which exceeds the profession here of this demon. You must be one who believes, one who will stand upon the rock of Jesus Christ, one who will turn away from your sin. And if you have been changed, you will be changed. If you have been affected by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God, you will be affected by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. You will be a different person. That is a reality. And to you, dear Christian, so many times Paul is merely talking to Christians who are struggling with sin, who are fighting with sin, who are walking into difficulties and maladies with sin. He's telling them to remember what they are, to remember what Jesus has done. You are not a slave anymore. Don't live as one who is a slave. You are not a servant of Satan. Don't live as one who is a servant of Satan. Don't lust after Egypt. Don't look at the times where Pharaoh ruled over you and beat upon you. Look forward to the promised land. Look forward to Jesus Christ. Believe upon that. Remember that. Remember what Christ has done for you. Remember the fullness of what he purchased. Remember the greatness of what you've been gained, that you could lose everything you have in this life. And the least in the kingdom of God would have more than the greatest person in the kingdom of this world. That is the greatness of what's purchased for you. That which is in this life is but temporal. That which is eternal is forever, never-ending, never-ending. Thirdly, we see this, that darkness is defeated. And we're already, we've already been inching toward that reality at the end of the second point. But darkness is defeated. Luke 4, beginning in 36 through 37. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with, a, for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding area. First, we need to understand something. And I know that most of you, I'm going to make some of these designations. I know that most of you aren't struggling with this. But this demonic activity is not something that is merely physical. Okay, We're not dealing with someone here who has some kind of a, a mental ailment, some kind of a physical ailment. Right? This is going beyond that which is mental and physical, though it may be affecting him in those ways. This is something that is spiritually dark, and this is something that is very specifically happening because of demonic influence upon this particular man in this particular situation. That's what we want to make sure we have 
this fenced in really well, that we're not throwing this into areas that it doesn't need to be, and we're not putting areas into this one that we don't need to have here. Because you don't want to go to either extreme on this. You don't want to say that all forms of mental illness are spiritual issues, or all forms of physical ailments are some kind of, of, of spiritual issues, and you also don't want to say that it's never spiritual. It absolutely can be. That's an absolute reality that is confirmed in the Scriptures. But the truth is, we don't always know. Now, in this particular case, we're able to read what the words on the page say. And if we'll just stay within the lines of what the words on this page say and not make them say things they don't say, we have a good understanding as to what's going on here. But we don't always know in other situations in life, especially as you begin to walk through a situation. And sometimes it's a little more complicated that you may have multiple categories that are going on, and we must not trade truth for certitude. That's an issue in this culture. There is a desire to trade truth for certitude. Certitude must be had at at any cost, even if you have to walk down a path of complete ignorance to get there and to hold to it. And there's a lot we can get out of this passage if we don't take this lightly, if we understand what the author is communicating here. We must not dismiss the reality of the demonic. We must not say things like, well, Jesus must just be accommodating this culture. Linsky makes this point. One commentator named Linsky makes this point. He says, Jesus either knew or did not know that these were demoniacs. If he did not know their real condition, we have a Savior who was as ignorant as were the people of his day. If he did not know these were not demoniacs, he acted as if they were, and we have a Savior who could lie. To say that Jesus only accommodated himself to the popular opinion leaves his case under a moral stigma. The fact is that he never lowered himself to any falsehood, whatever, no matter how widely or strongly that it was held. And some of this dismissal comes from a very modern arrogance. We are full of this in our day. We have a perspective that says that we are so intelligent now, and people before us were so ignorant and so foolish. And certainly there are many things that we know at this time, but the reality is no culture sees its ignorance at the time that it's walking through It's ignorance. And to say that people just saw these illnesses and sicknesses and mental illnesses and these things as merely being affected by, you know, evil spirits is something that's not consistent with reality. Um, To say, well, we have science now. We know how these things happen. We're able to discern these realities. We're able to understand that this person was sick and they're around this person, and this person got this person sick, and these people before didn't understand these realities. No, people that lived before us were well aware that people got sick, and it was something that is contagious. They, they were well aware that there are spiritual realities, and they're well aware that there are physical realities And there's a great deal that we don't understand even in our own culture. And we have those that are very educated in our culture that will even still trade certitude for truth and call that which is science, ignore it, 
ignore that which does not go along with what they believe to be true for the sake of certitude. The truth is, we don't know what we don't know. We start getting into these different ailments. We go into areas that even some of the most educated aren't fully knowledgeable of. There are things that they don't fully know about. You can go and sit before certain doctors, and they will have met with you for about 10 or 15 minutes before they are filling out some kind of a prescription for a mental ailment that you're having, not maybe taking any chemicals, or they may say that, but they don't know what it is. The truth is, we don't know, and many people are doing the best that they have with what they have. What we must guard ourselves from doing is falling into either of these ditches. So three things I want to point out here in this point. First, the fall affects the mind and the body. That's a reality. The fall affects the mind and the body. The reality is that we live in a fallen world and we are damaged. And one of the things that is damaged is our body. Another thing that is damaged is our mind. Thomas Aquinas was one that said that the mind is not affected by the fall. He is wrong. The reformed do not agree with that. Our minds are affected. And so the fall affects the mind and the body. Secondly, sin affects the mind and the body. So people can begin to run into situations physically and mentally because of sins that they're walking into. People can walk headlong into their sin to the point that they go insane. We have that in the Scriptures. Do you not see that with Nebuchadnezzar? Do you not see that even in Shakespearean plays? These are things that are understood, that you can walk headlong into that that is detrimental, into that which is sinful, and it can affect you physically and mentally. And thirdly, we have the category that we have right here. The demonic can affect the mind and the body, and that's what you have here. There can be demonic influence that affects the mind and the body. So, so what do we do with this? Well, we don't have certitude in each of these situations in our lives, and so we need to, we need to walk in a way that is, that is humble. We do not become a people that think that you're promised some kind of a healing in this life. You're not. You're not promised such a healing. That is a, that is a health and wealth mentality. That is something that is promised in the New Jerusalem. That is something that is promised in the life to come. We must not go to promises in the Old Covenant and assume that they are promised to those who are in the New Covenant. This is a great error. It's a great many that make this error. And you put upon people all kinds of guilt, all kinds of difficulty when you do that. We don't have a promise of health and wealth in this life. The Lord blesses us with that at times. But if Jesus tarries, each and every one of us will die the Bible does not teach also that sickness is always the work of Satan specifically at that time. So I would say it this way. Does the Bible teach that physical sickness and mental difficulties are the effect of the work of Satan? Well, we'd say it this way, yes and no. We could understand it this way. Number one, when Adam fell, the creation was cursed, and all people who came from the line of Adam have been affected. So in that understanding, you can see that all sickness is the work of Satan in that general regard, so in a very general way. But here's what you can't do. You can't look at something specifically happening in someone's life where someone is sick 
they're having an ailment, they're having a difficulty, and say, well, that's because Satan did that specifically to you. Or what someone likes to do, there's something you didn't do, as though there was some formula that you were supposed to follow in your own life whereby that wouldn't happen to you. Let me tell you some ways I've seen this before. I think I might have utilized this story in, in recent times, but it's one that comes to my mind at the moment. But I, I had someone that had come by my house many years ago, and he had a stuffy nose. And I was like, oh, you know, he's sneezing and he's blowing his nose. And uh, it's before the last couple of years. So everyone, you know, you still went out during those times. And um, if you did that, I would say in the recent times, everyone's running away from you if you're sneezing or coughing. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, you're not feeling well. You he's like, oh, no, don't say that. Don't say that. I'm sorry, don't say what? Don't say that. Sick, yeah, don't say that. <laughs> Why? I'm not. I'm, I'm highly blessed. I'm favored. I was like, no, man, I think you're sick. I think you need a Kleenex. I, I think you need some rest. No, no, don't say that. He had bought into this idea. And it comes from the Word of Faith movement and other heretical doctrines that if you acknowledge the reality of sickness, right, Church of Science gets into this as well. Uh, Church of Christian Science gets into some of these ideas. Buddhism will get into some of these ideas. That, that you're just recognizing, if you're recognizing these realities, that's what's causing it to be here. So you've got to ignore these things. You've got to separate yourself from these. And I would say, you know, we, we, have, we have quite a bit of information now to, to, to let us know why it is that people are getting sick and what's going on here. Your nose is stuffy because you've got some kind of an infection here and your body's trying to deal with it. Uh, we are not to come to that kind of an understanding to say that, that, that all sickness that people have is because of something sinful that they did. The Lord has purpose even on our difficulties. The Lord has purpose even in our sickness, even in our pain. The Lord has a purpose in this. We can trust God in that. We can trust God that we can lose all that we have in this life and we will be blessed with all that we lost and much more in the life to come. So we must not put such judgment upon people where they begin to think that, oh, I must have done something and that's why I'm sick. I must have done something and that's why this is happening to me. Now, there are things that you can do that can make you sick. There are things you can do that are very harmful to you. There's sinful behaviors that you can do that are very terrible upon your body. There's a reason why the Lord gives us specific commandments to live by. Remember, the Lord gave us the moral law not to make our lives boring, not to make our lives difficult. God didn't give us the moral law so we would just stick out and be weird people in our society. He gave us the moral law because it is the best way to live. This is how he's designed us to live. Right? This is how we're, we're designed to exist and designed to live. So when we live contrary to that, there's physical consequences to that. Certainly, we don't have to determine what the cause is of anything that happens to anyone at any time. It's not our job. We're not God. We do need to understand the different categories and the fall of man is that which affects people in this time. And we need to understand that reality. Those are dynamics that are here. But how did Jesus deal with this demon? That's another question I want us to answer. How, how did he deal with this demon? 
This demon was affecting this man. It was affecting him physically and mentally. Um, he didn't lie. He wasn't really accommodating the people at this time. Um, he wasn't a Messiah breaking the ninth commandment. No, he's a Messiah that can be trusted. We can believe upon him. But I want you to notice how Jesus deals with the demon. He doesn't go grab holy water and start throwing it around. He doesn't start doing some kind of a seance. He doesn't start walking through a series of chants. He doesn't do some incantations. You see him there in verse 35. It says, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out, and having done him no harm. It doesn't say he began to yell and scream. I don't know why some people seem to think demons are hard of hearing. I don't know if they're really nervous or, or what their deal is, where they're yelling and chanting and they're jumping around and doing these eccentric movements and all kinds of, of foolishness. There's no incantations that are here. There's no special ceremonies that you need to do. There's no special water that needs to be done here. We have something in this text, which though we find it in the book of Acts and the Gospels, is something that is not common. Not common in the scriptures and not common in our lives. But you do see how Jesus is dealing with him. He is speaking to him. We have another option that's given because the disciples go back to Jesus at one point and they're not able to cast out certain demons and he says these can only be cast out through prayer and fasting. That's what you have. The speaking of the word of God, prayer and and fasting. It's not very exciting. You know, Frank Peretti wouldn't have written many novels if, if it was just speaking the Word of God and, and prayer and fasting. And you get into some of these novels and these ideas where people begin to focus on this stuff in ways that are just not healthy, where they're seeing a demon behind, you know, every trash can. What are you going to, first off, you don't know if there's a demon behind that trash can. We have no evidence that demons possess inanimate objects or even taking up physical space. But beside that, suppose you knew there was a demon behind that trash can. What are you going to do differently? You've been given what you need to do. You don't need to understand this spiritual world. You don't need to understand how all these things are working. You don't need to do a bunch of silly rituals. Trust me, the, the darkness desires to disrupt worship. Don't think that Satan wouldn't have you doing a bunch of foolish behaviors that aren't even Christian thinking that you're in some way doing spiritual battle. Don't think that Satan wouldn't have you doing all kinds of foolish, superstitious behaviors thinking that you're doing something that is in some way beneficial you're in fact doing something that's not even Christian. It's not Christianity. It's not spiritual. It's not how you've been instructed. You don't need to look and find some book somewhere where they tell you how to deal with this. Speaking the Word of God, prayer and fasting. That's what you've been given if you're ever dealing with something like this. By the way, that's how you deal with most sin, most difficulties in life. Trusting the Word of God, prayer, fasting.
The world is full of religions that have all kinds of behaviors that people think are spiritually beneficial and are not. It's man's religion. It's just one more thing. Let me just make another list of things that man can do and feel like he's raising his standing with God. Let me get another list of things that man can do that's not within the Scriptures that's going to make him in some way feel like that he's doing something that is spiritual. Verse 36, it says, What is this word? For the authority and the power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out, and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. I think Martin Luther was on to this passage. I just can't help but think that. When you, when you think of the third verse of a mighty fortress is our God, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. Take note of that. We will not fear. We're not going to be scared of the trash can or what's around the corner or these things that I can't see and I don't really have knowledge of and I've not been instructed to even be considering We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And and what removed the demon from this man? One little word from Jesus. Jesus merely speaks, needs to speak the word, and all is done. He will come back. He will separate wheat and tares. But the Lord has a purpose even in this time. The Lord has a purpose even in this time. And our call is to not to seek merely comfort and happiness, but to seek obedience to Jesus Christ, to trust in the Word, trust in what He says. Remembering, remembering what, what Jesus has done, remembering where we were, how we were in spiritual bondage, and how we were freed, remembering what the Lord has done for us. Remember, Colossians 2, beginning in verse 13, says, And you were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. He has defeated Satan and his minions. D-Day has happened. It's just but a time between D-Day and V-Day. You remember that? It's but a time to the glorification, to Jesus' return where we'll reign with him in glory. And it's during this time that we are to walk in obedience, walk in obedience using the means that the Lord has given to us, remembering what we've seen in this passage, darkness desires to disrupt worship. One of the things that you can do in your life is prioritize the worship of God. Order your affairs in a way that is consistent with the glory of of God, not chasing after the things of this world, not chasing after the things of man's religion. Do not allow just darkness to disrupt your worship. And I'd say most especially, do not allow the things of this world to disrupt you and distract you from Lord's Day worship. Second, do that. Make it a priority to open up the Word of God in your family. 
that there would be a regular, purposeful, intentional time of opening the Word of God. And I would say even then from there, individually, that you would be opening up the Word of God. But don't allow darkness to disrupt worship. Remember, there, Jesus wins. Jesus has won. And we can trust in Him. We can trust in His goodness. We can trust in all He has done. As you defeated this demon here, so it is but foreshadowing the full crushing of the head of the serpent, the full destruction of all he has unveiled. The Lord will give to us that perfect residence in glory. We will gather together and worship him for all eternity. No longer being affected by sin. No longer will the consequences of sin affect our worship. Your friends, I, I hope and pray that you long.